Section 63 of Micrographia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Micrographia by Robert Hooke. Observation 58, Part 1. Of a new property in the air and several other transparent mediums named inflection, whereby very many considerable phenomena are attempted to be solved, and divers other uses are hinted. Since the invention and perfecting in some measure of telescopes, it has been observed by several that the sun and moon near the horizon are disfigured, losing that exactly smooth terminating circular limb which they are observed to have when situated near the zenith, and are bounded with an edge every way, especially upon the right and left sides, ragged and indented like a saw which inequality of their limbs i have further observed not to remain always the same but to be continually changed by a kind of fluctuating motion not unlike that of the waves of the sea so as that part of the limb which was but even now nicked or indented in is now protuberant and will presently be sinking again neither is this all but the whole bodies of the luminaries due in the telescope seem to be depressed and slatted the upper and more especially the underside appearing nearer to the middle than really they are, and the right and left appearing more remote, whence the whole area seems to be terminated by a kind of oval. It is further observed that the body, for the most part, appears red, or of some color approaching near unto it is some kind of yellow. And this I have always marked, that the more the limb is slatted or ovaled, the more red does the body appear, though not always the contrary. It is further observable that both fixed stars and planets, the nearer they appear to the horizon, the more red and dull they look, and the more they are observed to twinkle, insomuch that I have seen the dog-star to vibrate so strongly and bright a radiation of light, as almost to dazzle my eyes, and presently almost to disappear. It is also observable that those bright scintillations near the horizon are not by much so quick and sudden in their consecutions of one another, as the nimblest twinklings of stars nearer the zenith. This is also notable, that the stars near the horizon are twinkled with several colors, so as sometimes to appear red, sometimes more yellow, and sometimes blue, and this when the star is a pretty way elevated above the horizon. I have further very often seen some of the small stars of the fifth or sixth magnitude at certain times to disappear for a small moment of time and again appear more conspicuous and with a greater luster. I have several times with my naked eye seen many smaller stars, such as may be called of the seventh or eighth magnitude, to appear for a short space and then vanish, which by directing a small telescope towards that part they appeared and disappeared in, I could presently find to be indeed small stars so situate, as I had seen them with my naked eye, and to appear twinkling like the ordinary visible stars. Nay, in examining some very notable parts of the heaven with a three-foot tube, methought I now and then in several parts of the constellation could perceive little twinklings of stars, making a very short kind of apparition, and presently vanishing, but noting diligently the places where they thus seemed to play at bow-peep. I made use of a very good twelve-foot tube, and with that it was not uneasy to see those and several other degrees of smaller stars, and some smaller yet that seemed again to appear and disappear. And these also, by giving the same object-glass a much bigger aperture, I could plainly and constantly see appear in their former places. 
so that I have observed some twelve several magnitudes of stars less than those of the six magnitudes commonly recounted in the globes. It has been observed and confirmed by the accuratest observations of the best of our modern astronomers that all the luminous bodies appear above the horizon when they really are below it, so that the sun and moon have both been seen above the horizon, whilst the moon has been in an eclipse. I shall not hear instance in the great refractions that the tops of high mountains seen at a distance have been found to have, all which seem to argue the horizontal refraction much greater than it is hitherto generally believed. I have further taken notice that not only the sun, moon, and stars, and high tops of mountains have suffered these kinds of refraction, but trees and several bright objects on the ground. I have often taken notice of the twinkling of the reflections of the sun from a glass window at a good distance, and of a candle in the night. But that is not so conspicuous, and in observing the setting sun I have often taken notice of the tremulation of the trees and bushes, as well as of the edges of the sun. Divers of these phenomena have been taken notice of by several who have given several reasons of them, but I have not yet met with any altogether satisfactory, though some of their conjectures have been partly true, but partly also false. Setting myself, therefore, upon the inquiry of these phenomena, I first endeavoured to be very diligent in taking notice of the several particulars and circumstances observable in them, and next in making divers particular experiments that might clear some doubts, and serve to determine, confirm, and illustrate the true and adequate cause of each. And upon the whole I find much reason to think that the true cause of all these phenomena is from the inflection or multiplicate refraction of those rays of light within the body of the atmosphere, and that it does not proceed from a refraction caused by any terminating superficies of the air above, nor from any such exactly defined superficies within the body of the atmosphere. This conclusion is grounded upon these two propositions. First, that a medium whose parts are unequally dense and moved by various motions and transpositions as to one another, will produce all those visible effects upon the rays of light, without any other coefficient cause. Secondly, that there is in the air or atmosphere such a variety in the constituent parts of it, both as to their density and rarity, and as to their divers mutations and positions one to another. By density and rarity I understand a property of a transparent body that does either more or less refract a ray of light coming obliquely upon its superficies out of a third medium toward its perpendicular. As I call glass a more dense body than water and water a more rare body than glass because of the refractions more or less deflecting towards the perpendicular that are made in them of a ray of light out of the air that has the same inclination upon either of their superficies. So as to the business of refraction, spirit of wine is a more dense body than water, it having been found by an accurate instrument that measures the angles of refractions to minutes, that for the same refracted angle of thirty degrees zero minutes, in both these mediums, the angle of incidence in water was but forty-one degrees thirty-five minutes, but the angle of the incidence in the trial with spirit of wine was forty-two degrees forty-five minutes. But as to gravity, water is a more dense body than spirit of wine, for the proportion of the same water to the same very well rectified spirit of wine was as twenty-one to nineteen. So as to refraction water is more dense than ice, for I have found by a most certain experiment which I exhibited before divers illustrious persons of the Royal Society, that the refraction of water was greater than that of ice, though some considerable authors have affirmed the contrary, and though the ice be a very hard, and the water a very fluid body. 
that the former of the two preceding propositions is true may be manifested by several experiments at first if you take any two liquors differing from one another in density but yet such as will readily mix as salt water or brine and fresh almost any kind of salt dissolved in water and filtrated so that it be clear spirit of wine and water nay spirit of wine and spirit of wine one more highly rectified than the other and very many other liquors if i say you take any two of these liquors and mixing them in a glass vial against one side of which you have fixed or glued a small round piece of paper and shaking them well together so that the parts of them may be seen somewhat disturbed and move up and down you endeavor to see that round piece of paper through the body of the liquors you shall plainly perceive the figure to wave and to be indented much after the same manner as the limb of the sun through a telescope seems to be save only that the mutations here are much quicker and if instead of this bigger circle you take a very small spot and fasten and view it as the former you will find it to appear much like the twinkling of the stars though much quicker which two phenomena for i shall take notice of no more at present though i could instance in multitudes of others must necessarily be caused by an inflection of the rays within the terminating superficies of the compounded medium since the surfaces of the transparent body through which the rays pass to the eye are not at all altered or changed this inflection if i may so call it i imagine to be nothing else but a multiplicate refraction caused by the unequal density of the constituent parts of the medium whereby the motion action or progress of the ray of life is hindered from proceeding in a straight line and inflected or deflected by a curve now that it is a curved line is manifest by this experiment i took a box such as a d g e in the first figure of the thirty-seventh scheme whose sides a b c d and e f g h were made of two smooth flat plates of glass then filling it half full with a very strong solution of salt i filled the other half with very fair fresh water then exposing the opacous side d h g c to the sun i observed both the refraction and inflection of the sunbeams i d and k h and marking as exactly as i could the points p n o m by which the ray k h passed through the compounded medium i found them to be in a curved line for the parts of the medium being continually more dense the nearer they were to the bottom the ray p f was continually more and more deflected downwards from the straight line this inflection may be mechanically explained either by m descartes principles by conceiving the globules of the third element to find less and less resistance against that side of them which is downwards or by a way which i have further explicated in the inquisition about colors to be from an obligation of the pulse of light whence the under part is continually promoted and consequently refracted towards the perpendicular which cuts the orbs at right angles but the particular figure of the curve line described by this way of light is i shall not now stand to examine especially since there may be so many sorts of it as there may be varieties of the positions of the intermediate degrees of density and rarity between the bottom and the top of the inflecting medium i could produce many more examples and experiments to illustrate and prove this first proposition viz that there is such a constitution of some bodies as will cause inflection as not to mention those i have observed in horn tortoise shell transparent gums and rosinous substances the veins of glass nay of melted crystal found and much complained of by glass grinders and others 
might sufficiently demonstrate the truth of it to any diligent observer. But that I presume I have by this example given proof sufficient, viz. ocular demonstration, to events that there is such a modulation or bending of the rays of light as I have called inflection, differing from both reflection and refraction, since they are both made in the superficies, this only in the middle, and likewise that this is able or sufficient to produce the effects I have ascribed to it. It remains, therefore, to show that there is such a property in the air, and that it is sufficient to produce all the above-mentioned phenomena, and therefore may be the principal, if not the only, cause of them. First, that there is such a property may be proved from this, that the parts of the air are some of them more condensed, others more rarefied, either by the differing heat or differing pressure it sustains, or by the somewhat heterogeneous vapors interspersed through it. For as the air is more or less rarefied, so does it more or less refract a ray of light, that comes out of a denser medium from the perpendicular. This you may find true if you make a trial of this experiment. Take a small glass bubble made in the form of that in the second figure of the thirty-seventh scheme, and by heating the glass very hot and thereby very much rarefying the included air, or which is better, by rarefying a small quantity of water included in it into vapors, which will expel the most part, if not all the air, and then sealing up the small neck of it and letting it cool, you may find, if you place it in a convenient instrument, that there will be a manifest difference as to the refraction. As if in this second figure you suppose A to represent a small cider hole through which the eye looks upon an object as C, through the glass bubble B, and the second side L, all which remain exactly fixed in their several places, the object C being so sized and placed, that it may just seem to touch the upper and under edge of the whole L, and so all of it be seen through the small glass ball of rarefied air, then by breaking off the small sealed neck of the bubble, without at all stirring the sight's object or glass, and admitting the external air, you will find yourself unable to see the utmost ends of the object, but the terminating rays AE and AD, which were before refracted to G and F by the rarefied air, will proceed almost directly to I and H, which alteration of the rays, seeing there is no other alteration made in the organ by which the experiment is tried, save only the admission or exclusion of the condensed air, must necessarily be caused by the variation of the medium contained in the glass B, the greatest difficulty in the making of which experiment is from the uneven surfaces of the bubble which will represent an uneven image of the object. Now that there is such a difference of the upper and under parts of the air is clear enough evinced from the late improvement of the Torricellian experiment, which has been tried at the tops and feet of mountains, and may be further illustrated and inquired into by a means which some while since I thought of and used for the finding by what degrees the air passes from such a degree of density to such a degree of rarity, and another for the finding what pressure was requisite to make it pass from such a degree of rarefaction to a determinate density. Which experiments, because they may be useful to illustrate the present inquiry, I shall briefly describe. I took then a small glass pipe AB, about the bigness of a swan's quill, and about four foot long, which was very equally drawn, so that as far as I could perceive, no one part was bigger than another. This tube being open at both ends, I fitted into another small tube DE, that had a small bore just big enough to contain the small pipe, and this was sealed up at one, and opened at the other end. 
about which opened end I fastened a small wooden box, C, with cement, so that filling the bigger tube and part of the box with quicksilver, I could thrust the smaller tube into it till it were all covered with the quicksilver. Having thus done, I fastened my bigger tube against the side of a wall, that it might stand the steadier, and plunging the small tube clear under the mercury in the box, I stopped the upper end of it very fast with cement. Then lifting up the small tube, I drew it up by a small pulley, and a string that I had fastened to the top of the room, and found the height of the mercurial cylinder to be about twenty-nine inches. Then letting down the tube again, I opened the top and then thrust down the small tube till I perceived the quicksilver to rise within it to a mark that I had placed just an inch from the top, and immediately clapping on a small piece of cement that I had kept warm, I with a hot iron sealed up the top very fast, then letting it cool that both the cement might grow hard and more especially that the air might come to its temper natural for the day I tried the experiment in, I observed diligently and found the included air to be exactly an inch. Here you are to take notice that after the air is sealed up, the top of the tube is not to be elevated above the superficies of the quicksilver in the box, till the surface of that within the tube be equal to it. For the quicksilver, as I have elsewhere proved, being more heterogeneous to the glass than the air, will not naturally rise up so high within the small pipe as the superficies of the mercury in the box, and therefore you are to observe how much below the outward superficies of the mercury in the box that of the same in the tube does stand, when the top being open, free ingress is admitted to the outward air. Having thus done, I permitted the cylinder or small pipe to rise out of the box till I found the surface of the quicksilver in the pipe to be two inches above that in the box, and found the air to have expanded itself but one-sixteenth part of an inch. Then drawing up the small pipe till I found the height of the quicksilver within to be four inches above that without, I observed the air to be expanded only one-seventh of an inch more than it was at first, and to take up the room of one and one-seventh inch. Then I raised the tube till the cylinder was six inches high, and found the air to take up one and two-ninths inches of room in the pipe, and then to eight, ten, twelve, etc. The expansion of the air that I found to each of which cylinders are set down in the following table where the first row signifies the height of the mercurial cylinder, the next the expansion of the air, the third the pressure of the atmosphere, or the highest cylinder of mercury, which was then near thirty inches, the last signifies the force of the air so expanded, which is found by subtracting the first row of numbers out of the third, for having found that the outward air would then keep up the quicksilver to thirty inches, Look, whatever of that height is wanting must be attributed to the elator of the air depressing, and therefore having the expansion in the second row, and the height of the subjacent cylinder of mercury in the first, and the greatest height of the cylinder of mercury, which of itself counterbalances the whole pressure of the atmosphere by subtracting the numbers of the first row out of the numbers of the third, you will have the measure of the cylinder so depressed and consequently the force of the air in the several expansions registered. Table. The height of the cylinder of mercury that together with the elator of the included air balanced the pressure of the atmosphere. The expansion of the air. The height of the mercury that counterbalanced the atmosphere. The strength of the elator of the expanded air. Height of cylinder zero. Expansion of air one. Atmospheric pressure thirty 
Strength of elator, 30. Height of cylinder, 2. Expansion of air, 1 and 1 16th. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 28. Height of cylinder, 4. Expansion of air, 1 and 1 7th. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 26. Height of cylinder, 6. Expansion of air, 1 and 2 ninths. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 24. Height of cylinder, 8. Expansion of air, 1 and 1 third. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 22. Height of cylinder, 10. Expansion of air, 1 and 1 half. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 20. Height of cylinder, 12. Expansion of air, 1 and 2 thirds. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 18. Height of cylinder, 14. Expansion of air, 1 and 5 sixth. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 16. Height of cylinder, 16. Expansion of air, 2 and 2 27ths. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 14. Height of cylinder, 18. Expansion of air, 2 and 4 ninths. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 12. Height of cylinder, 20. Expansion of air, 3. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 10. Height of cylinder, 22. Expansion of air, 3 and 7 ninths. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 8. Height of cylinder, 24. Expansion of air, 5 and 7 eighteenths. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 6. Height of cylinder, 25. Expansion of air, 6 and 2 thirds. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 5. Height of cylinder, 26. Expansion of air, 8 and 1 half. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 4. Height of cylinder, 26 and 1 quarter. Expansion of air, 9 and 1 half. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 3 and 3 quarters. Height of cylinder, 26 and 1 half. Expansion of air, 10 and 3 quarters. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 3 and 1 half. Height of cylinder, 26 and 3 quarters. Expansion of air, 13. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 3 and 1 quarter. Height of cylinder, 27. Expansion of air, 15 and 1 half. Atmospheric pressure, 30. Strength of elator, 3. End of table. I had several other tables of my observations and calculations which I then made, but it being above a twelve month since I made them, and by that means having forgot many circumstances and particulars, I was resolved to make them over once again, which I did August the 2nd, 1661, with the very same tube which I used the year before when I first made the experiment, for it being a very good one, I had carefully preserved it. And after having tried it over and over again, and being not well satisfied of some particulars, I at last, having put all things in very good order, and being as attentive and observant as possibly I could, of every circumstance requisite to be taken notice of, did register my several observations in this following table, in the making of which I did not exactly follow the method that I had used at first, but having lately heard of Mr. Townley's hypothesis, I shaped my course in such sort as would be most convenient for the examination of that hypothesis, 
the event of which you have in the latter part of the last table. The other experiment was to find what degrees of force were requisite to compress or condense the air into such or such a bulk. The manner of proceeding therein was this. I took a tube about five foot long, one of whose ends was sealed up, and bended in the form of a siphon much like that represented in the fourth figure of the thirty-seventh scheme, one side whereof, A.D., that was opened at A, was about fifty inches long. The other side, B.C., shut at B, was not much above seven inches long. Then placing it exactly perpendicular, I poured in a little quicksilver, and found that the air B.C. was six and seven-eighths inches, or very near to seven. Then pouring in quicksilver at the longer tube, I continued filling of it till the air in the shorter part of it was contracted into half the former dimensions, and found the height exactly nine and twenty inches, and by making several other trials and several other degrees of condensation of the air, I found them exactly answer the former hypothesis. But having, by reason it was a good while since I first made, forgotten many particulars, and being much unsatisfied in others, I made the experiment over again, and from the several trials collected the former part of the following table, where in the row next to the left hand, twenty-four signifies the dimensions of the air, sustaining only the pressure of the atmosphere, which at that time was equal to a cylinder of mercury of nine and twenty inches. The next figure above it was the dimensions of the air enduring the first compression made by a cylinder of mercury five and three-sixteenths inches high, to which the pressure of the atmosphere nine and twenty inches being added, the elastic strength of the air so compressed will be found thirty-four and three-sixteenths, etc. A table of the elastic power of the air, both experimentally and hypothetically calculated according to its various dimensions. The dimensions of the included air. The height of the mercurial cylinder counterpoised by the atmosphere, also known as the atmospheric pressure. The mercurial cylinder added or taken from the former. The summer difference of these two cylinders. What they ought to be, according to the hypothesis. The dimensions of the air, 12. The atmospheric pressure, 29. The cylinder added to the former, 29. The sum of the two cylinders, 58. What they ought to be, 58. The dimensions of the air, 13. The atmospheric pressure, 29. The cylinder added to the former, 24 and 11 sixteenths. The sum of the two cylinders, 53 and 11 sixteenths. What they ought to be, 53 and 7 thirteenths. The dimensions of the air, 14. The atmospheric pressure, 29. The cylinder added to the former, 20 and 3 sixteenths. The sum of the two cylinders, 49 and 3 sixteenths. What they ought to be, 49 and 5 sevenths. The dimensions of the air, 16. The atmospheric pressure, 29. The cylinder added to the former, 14. The sum of the two cylinders, 43. What they ought to be, 43 and a half. The dimensions of the air, 18. The atmospheric pressure, 29. The cylinder added to the former, 9 and 1 eighth. The sum of the two cylinders, 38 and 1 eighth. What they ought to be, 38 and 2 thirds. The dimensions of the air, 20. The atmospheric pressure, 29. The cylinder added to the former, 5 and 3 sixteenths. The sum of the two cylinders, 
39 and 3 sixteenths, what they ought to be, 34 and 4 fifths, the dimensions of the air, 24, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder added to the former, 0, the sum of the two cylinders, 29, what they ought to be, 29, the dimensions of the air, 48, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 14 and 5 eighths, the difference of the two cylinders, 14 and 3 eighths, what they ought to be, 14 and a half, the dimensions of the air, 96, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 22 and 1 eighth, the difference of the two cylinders, 6 and 7 eighths, what they ought to be, 7 and 2 eighths, the dimensions of the air, 192, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 25 and 5 eighths, the difference of the two cylinders, 3 and 3 eighths, what they ought to be, 3 and 5 eighths, the dimensions of the air, 384, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 27 and 2 eighths, the difference of the two cylinders, 1 and 6 eighths, what they ought to be, 1 and 7 sixteenths, the dimensions of the air, 576, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 27 and 7 eighths, the difference of the two cylinders, 1 and 1 eighth, what they ought to be, 1 and 5 twenty-fourths, the dimensions of the air, 768, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 28 and 1 eighth, the difference of the two cylinders, 7 eighths, what they ought to be, 7 and 1 quarter eighths, the dimensions of the air, 960, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 28 and 3 eighths, the difference of the two cylinders, 5 eighths, what they ought to be, 5 and 4 fifths eighths, the dimensions of the air, 1152, the atmospheric pressure, 29, the cylinder taken from the former, 28 and 7 sixteenths, the difference of the two cylinders, 9 sixteenths, what they ought to be, 10 sixteenths. End of table. From which experiments, I think, we may safely conclude that the elater of the air is reciprocal to its extension, or at least very near, so that to apply it to our present purpose, which was indeed the chief cause of inventing these ways of trial, we will suppose a cylinder indefinitely extended upwards. I say a cylinder, not a piece of a cone, because, as I may elsewhere show in the explication of gravity, that triplicate proportion of the shells of a sphere to their respective diameters, I suppose to be removed in this case by the decrease of the power of gravity, and the pressure of the air at the bottom of this cylinder to be strong enough to keep up a cylinder of mercury of thirty inches. Now because by the most accurate trials of the most illustrious and incomparable Mr. Boyle, published in his deservedly famous pneumatic book, the weight of quicksilver to that of the air here below is found near about as 14,000 to 1. If we suppose that the parts of the cylinder of the atmosphere to be everywhere of an equal density, we shall, as he there deduces, find it extended to the height of 35,000 feet, or 7 miles. But because by these experiments we have somewhat confirmed the hypothesis of the reciprocal proportion of the elators to the extensions, we shall find that by supposing this cylinder of the atmosphere divided into a thousand parts, 
each of which being equivalent to thirty-five feet, or seven geometrical paces, that is, each of these divisions containing as much air as is supposed in a cylinder near the earth, of equal diameter and thirty-five foot high, we shall find the lowermost to press against the surface of the earth, with the whole weight of the above mentioned the thousand parts. The pressure of the bottom of the second against the top of the first to be one thousand minus one equals nine hundred ninety nine of the third against the second is to be one thousand minus two equals nine hundred ninety eight of the fourth against the third to be one thousand minus three equals nine hundred ninety seven of the uppermost against the nine hundred ninety nine or that next below it to be one thousand minus nine hundred ninety nine equals one so that the extension of the lowermost next the earth will be to the extension of the next below the uppermost as one to nine hundred ninety nine for as the pressure sustained by the nine hundred ninety nine is to the pressure sustained by the first so is the extension of the first to the extension of the nine hundred ninety nine so that from this hypothetical calculation we shall find the air to be indefinitely extended for if we suppose the whole thickness of the air to be divided as i just now instanced into a thousand parts and each of these under differing dimensions or altitudes to contain an equal quantity of air we shall find that the first cylinder whose base is supposed to lean on the earth will be found to be extended thirty-five and thirty-five nine hundred ninety-ninths foot the second equal division or cylinder whose basis is supposed to lean on the top of the first shall have its top extended higher by thirty-five and seven nine hundred ninety-eighths the third thirty-five and one hundred five nine hundred ninety-sevenths the fourth thirty-five and one hundred forty nine hundred ninety-sixth and so onward each equal quantity of air having its dimension measured by thirty-five and some additional number expressed always in the manner of a fraction whose numerator is always the number of the place multiplied by thirty-five and whose denominator is always the pressure of the atmosphere sustained by that part so that by this means we may easily calculate the height of nine hundred ninety-nine divisions of those one thousand divisions i supposed whereas the uppermost may extend itself more than as high again nay perhaps indefinitely or beyond the moon for the elators and expansions being in reciprocal proportions since we cannot yet find the plus ultra beyond which the air will not expand itself we cannot determine the height of the air for since as we have shown the proportion will be always the pressure sustained by any part is to thirty-five so one thousand to the expansion of that part the multiplication or product therefore of the pressure and expansion that is of the two extreme proportionals being always equal to the product of the means or thirty-five thousand it follows since that rectangle or product may be made up of the multiplication of infinite diversities of numbers that the height of the air is also indefinite for since as far as i have yet been able to try the air seems capable of an indefinite expansion the pressure may be decreased in infinitum and consequently its expansion upwards indefinite also there being therefore such a difference of density and no experiment yet known to prove assaultus or skipping from one degree of rarity to another much differing from it that is that an upper part of the air should so much differ from that immediately subjacent to it as to make a distinct superficies such as we observe between the air and water etc but it being more likely that there is a continual increase of rarity in the parts of the air the further they are removed from the surface of the earth it will hence necessarily follow that as in the experiment of the salt and fresh water 
the ray of light passing obliquely through the air also, which is of very different density, will be continually and infinitely inflected or bended from a straight or direct motion. This granted, the reason of all the above recited phenomena concerning the appearance of the celestial bodies will very easily be deduced as, first, the redness of the sun, moon, and stars will be found to be caused by the inflection of the rays within the atmosphere. That it is not really in or near the luminous bodies will, I suppose, be very easily granted, seeing that this redness is observable in several places differing in longitude, to be at the same time different, the setting and rising sun of all parts being for the most part red. And secondly, that it is not merely the color of the air interposed, will, I suppose, without much more difficulty be yielded, seeing that we may observe a very great interstitium of air betwixt the object and the eye makes it appear of a dead blue, far enough differing from a red or yellow. But thirdly, that it proceeds from the refraction or inflection of the rays by the atmosphere, this following experiment will, I suppose, sufficiently manifest. Take a spherical crystalline vial, such as is described in the fifth figure ABCD, and having filled it with pure clear water, expose it to the sunbeams. Then taking a piece of very fine Venice paper, apply it against that side of the globe that is opposite to the sun as against the side BC and you shall perceive a bright red ring to appear caused by the refraction of the rays a a a a which is made by the globe in which experiment if the glass and water be very clear so that there be no sands nor bubbles in the glass nor dirt in the water you shall not perceive any appearance of any other color to apply which experiment we may imagine the atmosphere to be a great transparent globe which being of a substance more dense than the other or, which comes to the same, that has its parts more dense toward the middle, the sunbeams that are tangents, or next within the tangents of this globe, will be refracted or inflected from their direct passage towards the center of the globe, whence according to the laws of refractions made in a triangular prism, and the generation of color set down in the description of Muscovy glass, there must necessarily appear a red color in the transitus, or passage of those tangent rays. To make this more plain, we will suppose in the sixth figure, ABCD, to represent the globe of the atmosphere, EFGH to represent the opacous globe of the earth lying in the midst of it, near to which the parts of the air, sustaining a very great pressure, are thereby very much condensed, from whence those rays that are by inflection made tangents to the globe of the earth, and those without them that pass through the more condensed part of the atmosphere, as supposed between A and E are, by reason of the inequality of the medium, inflected towards the center, whereby there must necessarily be generated a red color, as is more plainly shown in the former cited place. Hence whatsoever opacious bodies, as vapors or the like, shall chance to be elevated into those parts, will reflect a red towards the eye and therefore these evenings and mornings appear reddest that have the most store of vapors and halitutious substances exhaled to a convenient distance from the earth for thereby the inflection is made the greater and thereby the color also the more intense and several of those exhalations being opacious reflect several of those rays which through an homogeneous transparent medium would pass unseen and therefore we see that when there chances to be any cloud situated in those regions they reflect a strong and vivid red. Now the one great cause of the redness may be this inflection, yet I cannot wholly exclude the color of the vapors themselves, 
which may have something of a redness in them, they being partly nitrous and partly fulginous, both which steams tinge the rays that pass through them, as is made evident by looking at the bodies through the fumes of aquafortis, or spirit of nitre, as the newly mentioned illustrious person has demonstrated, and also through the smoke of a fire or chimney. End of section 63. Recording by Philip Gould.